Take your Bibles and let us begin in Hebrews 13, and then we will continue in our reading through the Abrahamic narrative, as it is known, in Genesis. Hebrews 13, verse 10 through 15. Let us pray. Our gracious God, as we now come to hear your word read publicly in preparation for hearing it preached, we ask, Lord, that you would help us, that you would help everyone who you've gathered here today, that we would have understanding, and that we would have even the best kind of understanding, the understanding that comes from faith. Oh, gracious God, give us your Holy Spirit so that we would recognize herein, this word, divine authority, and that we would be brought to see it as the very voice of our Master, Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would help our sons and daughters, our husbands, our wives, help all who are gathered here today, regardless of where they have come from, regardless of where they are going, Lord, give each of us more than we even came looking for or have even asked for. Oh, Lord, give us, we pray, the light of your word. Bind us to it so that we might adore your Son, Jesus Christ. It is by his merits, it is by his mediation as a sin-bearer that we ask for so many good things. We so honor his death and his resurrection by asking for your great help now. In his name, amen. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 10 through 15. This is God's word. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now let us go to Genesis chapter 13. And... A small adjustment on our reading today. We will read Genesis 13, 1 through 4, and then I will read also to you verse 18. And then next Lord's Day, we'll come back and read and preach on that middle section where Abram and Lot have a conflict, and it is resolved in a very unexpected way. But today... 13, 1 through 4, and 18. So Abram went up from Egypt, 
and he and his wife and all that he had and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Verse 18. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. This is God's word. Beloved, many things in this world are made worse when they are broken. You may have some of those things. You may have them now in the garage when they once were set on the mantle. Many things are made worse when they're broken, but a hard heart is not one of those things. The proud heart, the self-reliant heart, the wayward heart, the stubborn heart, these are always made better, always, when they are broken. When, by the grace of God, we are brought to realize that we are somewhere we should not be, or we are with somebody we should not be with, or we are doing something that we should not be doing, or we are not doing something that we should be doing. When the grace of God comes and opens our eyes to see that our stiff neck has led us away from God, the breaking of heart that follows will be remembered by us as one of the best things that God has ever done for us. It is a great kindness if the Lord comes and breaks your hard heart. The Lord came to Egypt to break a man's stubborn heart. His name, Abram. Abram had left the land of promise. He had traveled 300 miles southwest to solve his problems his own way. He did not make things better. He made things worse. He did not become a better man. He became a worse man. But the Lord himself did not change. The Lord's choice, the Lord's calling, the Lord's embracing of Abram did not change. There was no way Abram, having now been effectually called, was going to be let go, to disappear under the potter's trowel into the godless nation of Egypt. The Lord would not allow it. So to take back Abram's heart, the Lord afflicted Pharaoh's house with great plagues, chapter 12, 17 says. The very house in which Abram was trying to manipulate his future by lying about his wife, calling her his sister. That house, the Lord put a plague upon it. The Lord broke Abram's clever plan and broke Abram's hard heart. So it was Pharaoh who delivered the sharp rebuke that Abram needed to hear. Chapter 12, verse 18, Pharaoh says, What is this you have done to me? In other words, why are you such a bad man, Abram? Why are you such a bad man? Why would you, knowing the power 
and knowing the jealousy of your God, why would you bring such pain to my house? At that point, Pharaoh had no choice but to let Abram live and leave. He knew if he harmed Abram in any way, the God who had just plagued him would destroy him. So Abram departs. He even departs with an enormous lot of new wealth. Verse 20 of that chapter, 12. That's all Pharaoh's way of pacifying Abram's God, whom he really doesn't know. But he doesn't want to get to know him any better, having been plagued. What then does Abram do? He repents. That's what always happens when a hard heart is broken by the living God. Abram repents. His hard heart broken by Pharaoh's rebuke. Scripture says, a rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. Proverbs 17.10. What kind of wound did the Lord bring to Abram's heart? Well, it was a wound greater than a hundred blows brought upon a fool. Pharaoh's rebuke cut deep into Abram like the very best medicine does. What does Abram do with a newly broken heart? He turns back to God and enters upon a second season of fruitful repentance in his life. This isn't the first season of repentance for Abram. His first season was when he came to saving faith, when he was first converted, when he left Ur of the Chaldeans. Now he enters upon his great second season of repentance, and by it his faith will be made all the stronger. And beloved, this is what chapter 13 is all about. We know Abram is repenting because not only does he leave Egypt behind, he also comes back to Canaan, the land God had promised him and his offspring, even though he had no children just yet. <clears throat> Repentance. <clears throat> Maybe you didn't hear that. <clears throat> Repentance always involves leaving the wrong way <clears throat> and going the right way with God. But Abram does not just come back to Canaan, and this is so crucial to see. He does not just come back to Canaan. He comes back to the Lord. Look at verse 4 of today's reading. Abram comes to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. This is how we know that Abram's repentance is full and true. He both turns away from something and he turns toward something. He turns away from life in Egypt, from scheming, from solving his own problems any way he thinks will work, and he comes back to Canaan. But he also turns to something, the Lord. He comes to the altar and calls upon the name of the Lord. Abram's repentance is not just evidenced by the, by the GPS, where he's located on the earth. His repentance is spiritual and true and full. He comes all the way to the altar and calls upon the name of the Lord. <clears throat> when he 
when he was about to step out of Egypt for the last yard, if somebody had put a microphone in front of him and said, Abram, where are you going? He would not have said to Canaan. He would not have said to Bethel. He would have said, I'm going to the Lord. That's true repentance, beloved. Beloved, remember this. Repentance is never full and never true unless we also bring our soul to the Lord. Repentance is not just feeling sorry. Repentance is not just feeling embarrassed. Repentance is not just saying a few words of regret. Repentance is not even just about turning away from bad behavior, though it must include that. But full and true repentance is calling on the name of the Lord, which means we return by faith to a pattern of prayer and to a pattern of worship where the glory of God and the enjoyment of God are restored in our soul. We return to public assemblies. We return to the Lord's Supper. We return to heartfelt and sincere prayer, confessing sin and rejoicing in grace. Here's how another pastor made a very similar point. If a man turns from sin without turning to God, he will find his sin has only changed its name. So if a person turns from theft, or turns from laziness, or turns from sexual immorality, or turns from gossip, but if they don't turn to God as well, their sin will only have changed its name. Now it will be pride, and it will be arrogance, or some idolatry of self-boasting, or some idolatry of self-reliance, which always brings self-deception. And what Darkness is at the heart of such self-deception, thinking that my reform of my life is what atones for my sin before God. That is a false gospel. It is a gospel of the flesh. Your reform of your own life does not atone for your sins. Abram cannot just leave Egypt and call it repentance. He must Rejoice over the altar, for there he finds blood. There he finds Christ. We'll get to that. Only Christ's blood atones. Abram does not just turn from sin. He turns to God. By faith, he desires to recover his experience with God, which he had when God first appeared to him in Canaan, and God first spoke to him in Canaan. So Abram comes all the way back to the altar that is described in verse 7 and 8 of Genesis 12. Notice with me how the first four verses now of chapter 13 describe a quickening, narrowing in Abraham's focus. First, he comes into the Negev, verse 1. That's a large, very dry region in southern Israel, just north of Egypt. But Abram keeps moving. He keeps moving north, out of the Negev, verse 3. He comes as far north as the village of Bethel. And once there, he returns to the very place he once pitched a tent. 
But that place is not the final place that he is coming to. Verse 4 says he then comes to the place where he had made an altar at first. That's the final place. So understand what has happened. When Abram's repentance began in Egypt, he did not just look to the land of Canaan. He did not just look to his old homestead where he had pitched a tent. He was not just awash in nostalgia. His vision from deep in Egypt was on the altar he had previously built. (coughs) The altar where he had previously called upon the Lord. Getting back to the altar was his vision. It was his mission. So don't just leave corruption behind. Get back to church. But don't just get back to church. Get back to God. Repentance is a spiritual work in the heart where we call upon the Lord and call for the mercy of the altar and own the truth of the altar about our sin. Repentance isn't geographical. There could be many of you here today who have still a hard heart and have no interest in repenting. That could be the case. Being here is not repentance. It's right to be here because it may be that the Lord, by his abundant grace, gives you more than you even were planning for on your way here. You may have been planning all along that you would come to church today and your heart would basically be in this position. Get it over with, preacher. And the Lord, who is more gracious than you, who is more kind than you, who is more slow to anger than you, he may, in this very service, take your hard, brittle heart and break it. And a year from now, you'll remember it as one of the best things that happened to you. That may be for some of you. Now, what is an altar? By its physical description, we can say an altar was a small man-made mountain. A handcrafted mound, maybe as big as a pulpit, a handcrafted mound of earth and stone. In Exodus 20, verse 22 through 26, the Lord gives instructions on how to build an altar. But they were building them before Israel came out of Egypt. The theological purpose of an altar was to offer animal sacrifices unto God while calling on the name of the Lord in prayer. So altars had bloody, bloody look about him. <clears throat> the death of an animal on the altar signified that the worshiper knew something, that the worshiper had been subdued by something, that the worldview of the worshiper had changed. The death of an animal on the altar signified the worshiper knows they are under God's wrath and that God's wrath must be satisfied. But the animal was not only killed on the altar, it was burned. And as that smoke rose to heaven, it signified that the worshiper belonged to God. 
not to himself. So a man on earth who is a sinner cannot have fellowship with God in heaven, who is holy, unless sin is recognized and God's curse against sin is properly administered. The end purpose, however, of the altar was fellowship, communion, reconciliation. This was God's idea. That was the purpose of the altar. Fellowship with God and life with God. And having prayer, calling upon the Lord at the altar, signifies that Abram, he is not just going through motions. This is spiritual vitality in his worship. He is truly wanting the Lord to refresh him in all that the sacrifice affords him to be refreshed in. Forgiveness of sin, welcome by the living God, help. So animal sacrifice on an altar was a temporary way, temporary way of satisfying God's wrath. The best proof that it was temporary is that it had to be repeated again and again and again. (coughs) An animal substitute on an earthen altar was never going to do the job permanently. Only Christ offering himself through death could permanently put away our sins, which is why the New Testament book of Hebrews says Christ did not come to offer himself repeatedly. That's Hebrews 9.25. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's Hebrews 9.26. Now, how did ancient worshipers of God learn to build altars and offer sacrifices on them? They learned it from God himself. God's the first theologian. God's the first liturgist. God's the the first worship leader. In Genesis 3.21, we read God himself sacrificed an animal and took the skins of that animal and covered the nakedness of Adam and Eve. Our first parents had fallen from God through sin and disobedience. That first sin brought sin to the whole world and death along with it. But in Genesis 3.21, the Lord God takes a temporary substitute, an animal. He shed its blood. He took its life. And this proved two things right off. God's justice toward our sin, and it proved his zeal for his own mercy. The Lord delights in steadfast love. He's broadcasting it right after the fall of our first parents. Now, from that day forward, in the ancient world, the godly drew near to God through altars, through sacrifices, through prayers. Genesis 4, we read that Abel brought the firstborn of his flock, and he brought the fat portions and offered it to the Lord. He probably brought that animal from his own flock to the very spot where his parents told him they had seen God take the first life of an animal. That's how he would have known. Mom and dad taught him about the altar. Then in Genesis 4.26, we read that Seth and others began calling upon the name of the Lord. Altar sacrifices 
were continuing in the ancient world among the remnant, among the godly line. They knew they were sinful, they knew God was just, and they knew God was merciful. Then you get to Genesis 8.20, and you read this about Noah right after he comes off the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Noah understood something. He understood through divine revelation that the great flood, which swept away most of the population on the earth at the time, that great flood did not, did not, did not satisfy God's wrath against man's sin. There had to be a sacrifice on the altar. Now this brings us back to Abram. In Genesis 12 and in Genesis 13, Abram on three different occasions builds an altar in the promised land. Genesis 12.7, he builds one. Genesis 12.8, he builds one. And Genesis 13.18, he builds one. But most important is the old altar visited in Genesis 13.4. It's the altar of repentance for Abram. It becomes Abram's ultimate vision, his ultimate destination, as he repents over his folly and unbelief in the Egyptian thing and returns to God. Why does he want to get to the old altar? Because it is there Abram can confirm to his soul his acceptance with Almighty God, who has just recently shown his wrath by plagues on Pharaoh's house. Abram wants to get back to that altar because that is where the Lord of heaven had already appeared to him on earth. There, the Lord of heaven spoke to him the great promises when he was on the earth. And there at that altar, Abram could once again honor both the glory of God for his holiness and the enjoyment of God for his mercy. Both are honored simultaneously at the altar. Altar sacrifices and altar prayers declared God is right in all his words about men, in all his judgments about men. He is right. The sacrifice says so. We deserve what the animal receives. But altar sacrifices and altar prayers also declared to Abraham's soul that he was accepted, forgiven, welcomed, kept by the mercy of blood. It was God's will that Abram take this enjoyment from the altar. Three times this Abraham is called the friend of God in the Old Testament. Beloved, that is for the enjoyment of God. But that is not free. That costs blood. But the Lord was pleased to pay the blood. You're probably, I guess, beginning to see why we read from Hebrews 13.10. It says we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. The apostle who wrote Hebrews is saying the Jerusalem altar, the altar at the temple, 
that is served night and day by Levitical priests at the time of his writing. That altar in Jerusalem from which the priests were allowed to eat meat sacrificed upon it, that Jerusalem altar and all the ancient altars before it, they have all been surpassed. They have all been superseded. They have all been displaced by the altar spoken of at the beginning of Hebrews 13, 10. The altar we have now is the cross of Christ. The cross is the place of final sacrifice. This is the argument the apostle's making in Hebrews 13. He's challenging Christians who are also born Jews, who are tempted to return to Judaism. And he's saying there's nothing back there for you. We have something better. We have an altar too, he's saying. On the cross, Jesus, the Son of God, offered himself to God for our sins, giving the glory to God which we owed and giving us the mercies of God which we could never earn. That's what happened on the cross altar. Why does Abram come back to the ancient altar? Because it is a sign to him. It is a vision to him of the superseding, surpassing, displacing final altar, the cross of Christ. Understand this. When Abram gets up to Bethel and calls on the name of the Lord at that earthen stone altar, whether it was still there or not, there's some debate about that in the commentaries because he says, says he came to the place, which makes it ambiguous. But it doesn't matter whether it was there or not. That's where he came to, where it was. He knew where it was because he had built it. But when he is finally there and calling upon the name of the Lord, he is thinking and looking and he is seeing the final sacrifice of his Redeemer. He comes to that altar because it is there his heart can be most devoted to what God had promised him. And what was that? We know from chapter 12, God had promised him an offspring, an offspring, a son of a woman, born under the law. God had promised Abram an offspring far in the future who would break the curse that has spread over the whole earth. And this one offspring of Abram's would break the curse by becoming a curse himself, cut off in death on the altar cross. So Abram came to the old altar to better see the final altar. And our Lord Jesus Christ tells us that ex that's exactly what happened. Listen to this, John eight fifty six. Your father Abraham, Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. When was Abraham rejoicing? He was rejoicing in his own days. He was rejoicing in the days of chapter 13, the record. He was rejoicing in the days of chapter 12, the record. He was rejoicing in his own days because he could see by faith Christ's day. And he could see the day when the final altar would be erected. 
the altar that would strengthen the soul of believers far more and far better than all the altars that Israel had ever built, than all the altars that were ever in the tabernacle or even in the temple of Jerusalem. A better altar, a final altar, not another animal repeated again altar. Where was Abraham rejoicing? He was, he was where he could most clearly see the promised future ministry of one of his offspring, at the altar. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And so we learn from our Lord's own words about Abraham in John eight fifty six. We learn that even joy and gladness are a are signs of a full and true repentance. Oh yeah. Abram was rejoicing when he came to that altar out of Egypt. Why? Because, beloved, there is no joy, there is no gladness in resolve to reform your behavior without the cross. There is no joy in that. There is no joy or gladness because we cannot see clearly what the outcome will be when all we are looking at is ourselves. And if we weren't deceived, we would already know the outcome of trying to reform our lives without calling out on the, to the Lord and rejoicing in the cross. The outcome is ruin. Vowing to reform our lives without a vision of the cross is a recipe for despair or a recipe for pride, but both are roads into hell because they leave man trusting himself and blinding and darkening his mind. Brian Chappell wisely said, just as we cannot enter into true repentance without sorrow for our guilt, we cannot emerge from true repentance without joy for our release from shame. We have not fully and truly repented if we are without joy. The lack of joy is just a sign that we have not truly wrapped ourselves in the blood of the offering, that we have not truly brought our heart to God to be a needy sinner who needs the death of a divine son and who has such a son. That brings joy because you are persuaded to your bones again. This is the renewing work of the Holy Spirit, persuaded to your bones again that all of your sins are forgiven. And they are not forgiven because you have vowed to reform yourself. They are forgiven because Jesus took a vow to die for you, to lay down his life for you. You know, these words from our Lord in John eight fifty six are a great diagnostic question for us. When I sin and go into prayer, do I come out rejoicing? When I come to public worship and confess my sins, I looked around quickly and most of you were doing it. When I confess my sins in public worship assemblies, do I come out with joy? 
I come out with joy because I have truly recognized that not even my grief over my sin has settled my debts. Not even my vows to reform and perform have settled my debts. The blood of Christ has settled my debts. Which means now I can become the weirdest person on the earth. I can find out anything I need to find out about myself. There's no sin that I cannot look at in my life. There's no sin I'm afraid to discover in my life. I'm done needing to hide because every time you find that I'm a sinner, every time you nail me with it and you're right, you're actually righter than you even know, you're just setting me up for joy because you're pushing me to the cross altar. Beloved, this is Abraham, the man of faith. Did we think his faith was in something else than the blood of the sacrifice? Did we think that the center of his life was somewhere else than the altar that we now have? Beloved, Jesus has been haunting your Old Testament scriptures ever since they were written because he was there haunting his elect so that they would not be lost, always summoning them, even letting them fall on their face in places like Egypt so that they would be restored through the cross altar. And so we see it. Praise God. May we live it and enjoy it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the revelation of your grace in the blood of your Son. We thank you that it is wondrously true that we now have an altar. It is not an altar that we can travel to with our car, but it is an altar that we can indeed call out upon in public assembly, in private prayer. It is the altar of the cross, and it's a testimony to us that it is always better to come home to the Lord than to stay away in the darkness. Father, I pray for those in this congregation who may be gathered here today with hard hearts. I pray that by your great mercy, you would break their hard hearts, and they would not think that they can keep one room of their heart closed off from you and lock the door. I pray that you would show them that they only have one heart, and whatever they do with a part of it, they've done with all of it. Father, break the hard-hearted and let, let it be a great day of remembrance to them. So help each father here who needs to especially go home and do business with you, go home and do it, and not be like wind over a rock, unmoved, unchanged. Father, I also pray that it would please you to continue to renew us all in this path of repentance. When we sin and fall down, I ask, Lord, and pray that you would grant us a helpful rebuke, whether in our conscience, by your word, 
by your spirit, whether by some providence that reaches us or some rebuke from a Gentile like Pharaoh. Lord, if somebody needs to tell us, I thought you were a Christian, why are you behaving like this? Oh, Lord, let them tell us. Let us have that ministry, even if it's a talking donkey. And Father, we pray that you would grant us all the the grace to come along this way of repentance, to come to the cross altar, and to have a true spiritual repentance where we call out on on the name of the Lord, We call upon the Lord Jesus Christ for for his power, for his substitution, for his sin-bearing, curse-breaking death, and for his zeal to give us forgiveness and to settle our debts and to now give us his life. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.